Anti-Asian violence is surging across this country. Deadly shootings in Atlanta. This morning, a man attacked and assaulted a 52-year-old Asian-American woman. New York, Los Angeles, and San Francisco have all reported a rise in hate crimes against Asian-Americans. Across the country, over 3,000 reported incidents of hate against the Asian community. Welcome to Many Roads in Conversation. I'm your host, Caitlin Dwyer. In this series, we ask people to sit down together and talk about issues faced by immigrant and first-generation communities within the United States. Today, we're listening to four women. They are lawyers and mental health practitioners, actors and academics. They also all identify as Asian American or mixed race, and they gathered together in front of a live audience in late 2022 at the Oregon Historical Society. At the event, they spoke frankly about their struggles, their advocacy, mental health, and how claiming and embodying identity can be a lifelong process. Leading the discussion is Dr. Patty Duncan, an associate professor of women, gender, and sexuality studies at Oregon State University. Speaking with Patty were historian Dr. Jennifer Fang, psychologist and actor Dr. Jane Vogel Montery, and attorney Leonie Reeves. As we start to hear each woman talk, I'll jump in and let you know who's who. We'll start with Patty Duncan. Um, Our origin stories as Asian American women vary greatly, but we also have some shared experiences. Can you all please tell us a little bit about your backgrounds and your experiences as Asian American women? What is your or your family's immigration experience or history, and what issues or events have shaped your life up to this point? And I'm wondering if one of you would like to begin, or if uh, we should move around. It's a big, how do you want big to do question. It? I, think, I think Jennifer, you should start. <laughs> okay. Since okay. you asked the question. Sure. <laughs> um, this is Jennifer Fang speaking. I I was born in the 1980s. Um, I am the first American-born generation in my family. Both my parents were born in China, but they were born during the Chinese Civil War. And because their families were aligned with the nationalists during the Civil War, their families ended up fleeing to Taiwan. And so my parents grew up in Taiwan and um, eventually came to the United States in the 1970s. Um, I feel like my family's immigration story is a little bit, it's, it's a little bit different than I think the the typical immigration stories you hear of about Chinese immigrants coming to the United States. My dad was a TV broadcaster in Taiwan. He's like very gifted in languages. And so he speaks English with like no accent at all. He speaks Spanish like a Spaniard. He ended up getting a job for the Voice of America um, as a radio reporter. And so that's what brought him to the United States. He, he broadcasted in Mandarin into China about the United States during the Cold War. You know, when I asked him, like, were you just like broadcasting propaganda? He was like, oh, no, it wasn't propaganda. We were just talking about all the great things that were happening in America. And I'm like, uh, okay, sure. <laughs> but um, 
I grew up, um, because my dad worked for the government, I grew up in uh, the suburbs of Washington, D.C., in a town called McLean, Virginia. We lived in sort of this, like, typical, what you would imagine, sort of this suburban subdevelopment, except it was Northern Virginia. So our neighbors were the CIA headquarters, and then Colin Powell lived in the subdevelopment about half a mile away. Our neighborhood was one of, um, you know, colonial-style houses, split levels, ranch-style houses. And, you know, unlike many other families in in this neighborhood growing up, ours was a multi-generational household, which I think says something about this, like, particular immigrant experience. We spoke Mandarin at home. Uh, my grandparents cooked us Chinese food for dinner every night. Um, I didn't speak English until I started preschool. For a very long time, my only exposure to, like, quote-unquote, Western food was um, was what was in a McDonald's Happy Meal. And I think that my research has been shaped in large part by this desire to unpack how suburban immigrant identities are constructed. I'm interested in finding out how immigrants find a sense of belonging in America and how they maintain connections to their ethnic heritage while becoming American. And then how that process ultimately reshapes how everybody understands what it means to be an American. Jane, I'm wondering if you would share a little bit next. Um, I'm Jane Montre, and um, I am from Jakarta, Indonesia. I was born there 70 years ago. I am what we call an Indo, and I just was wondering if any of you are Indo, or if you know of someone who is an Indo. We are a blend of Indonesian and European. Indonesia, where I was born, it was just very lush with natural resources, particularly spices. That was very appealing to European um, monarchs. And the Dutch were very uh, prolific in uh, going there and, I guess, stealing stuff, right? On my, on my father's side, that was my forefathers. They arrived in Indonesia in the 1700s and right away married Indonesian women, but because it's a patriarchy, they kept their Dutch citizenship. On my mother's side, my mother is a first-generation Indo. Her grandfather was Mantri, and they were Indonesian, but he was a very ambitious person, and the Dutch colonizers told him that they saw a lot of potential in him, and here's an idea. You give up that Indonesian name, change it to something European, something a little more interesting, a little more acceptable, and we're going to give you a job, and we're going to give you citizenship. And my great-grandfather jumped at it. He had 10 children, and it was his ticket. So then World War II breaks out, and the colonies become destabilized. They were losing their, their, their foothold on Indonesia, and Indonesia was quickly taking over its, its own identity. 
And so right on the, on the heels of World War II, we then go into a revolution. We were told that we had a choice because as Indos, the Dutch didn't really like us. Uh, we weren't blonde, blue-eyed, and even though we had that citizenship, uh, the Indos were not really Dutch. The Indonesian government said, you know what, you can give up your Dutch citizenship and you can stay. Unfortunately, um, my father's sister ended up getting caught in a massacre and she was brutally murdered by the Indonesian militants because she had Dutch heritage. And that was a real pivotal point in my family's history and in my life. Um, because at that point, my father said, you know, I can't, I can't go to the Netherlands. I've experienced too much racism. I will not go to the Netherlands. I'm going to America. For my family, it was like they held their breath for seven years before finally getting to the United States. We arrived in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. My parents had lost immediate family members. They had lost close friends, neighbors in those wars. It's my, part of my culture. You don't speak about trauma. You don't speak about pain. You just power through. And by the time we got to America, my parents had three little children. And my father and mother looked at us and said, these three children are Americans. So as an American then, I spent my life, and I am still doing it today, trying to figure out my identity. Am I Indonesian? I've been told, I was actually told by a woman here in Portland who's very active in the equity movement, no, Jane, you are not an Asian. You are white. Uh, you're an immigrant, I, re I respect that, but you are white. I was told by my father, you are not Dutch, and we will never have potatoes on our table. And we never did. I am an American. The courts declared me an American in 1966. But you know, I never had a turkey dinner until I married my husband. Am I really an American? <laughs> And now we're going to turn to Liani Reeves. Hi, everybody. My name is Liani Reeves, and um, I want to acknowledge it's November is Adoption Awareness Month, and um, I am adopted. So I just want to uh, give a shout out to all the adoptees and the people touched by adoption. Um, I was abandoned on an orphanage doorstep in Seoul, South Korea. I immigrated by myself on a plane full of screaming babies across the Pacific and across the country to be dropped off in a white American family um, with no ongoing ties to my country, to my culture, to the Korean language, to any part of Korea. I am 
a first-generation immigrant. I came here. I'm a naturalized citizen. I am unable to run for president. Sad for you all. Because <laughs> I would kill it. <laughs> um, but, you know, I am an immigrant, and I, and I identify with an immigrant experience. My stronger identity, though, is as an orphan. Um, and, you know, what that means to me is uh, an identity that has no real beginning. I do want to talk a little bit about, though, about being an Asian-American girl and woman in a white family in white neighborhoods. My mother did not look like me. My mother looked nothing like me. My mother was blonde hair and blue-eyed when she was young and looked, you know, much like the American standard of what, you know, women are supposed to look like. So that was very confusing for me, um, having no person around me that looked like me as sort of a standard of this is what women look like in America. Certainly, as I grew up and transitioned from girl to woman, and, you know, I didn't see myself portrayed. I grew up in the 80s. Uh, and so I just grew up confused um, and wanting to be white. I experienced a lot of racism and bullying from other um, high school girls who, you know, made it very clear that I was not welcome there and made it very clear that my race was something that was to be used against me in any sort of power dynamic. And so that was sort of what it was like for me well into my adulthood. When I was in um, practicing law already, I sort of had an identity crisis. I'd say it was a quarter-life crisis. Um, I ended up actually in a mental health treatment program for treatment for depression and an eating disorder because I just had no idea who I was. Like, I had just never been forced to think about who I was and what it meant to be an Asian woman or what it meant to be a woman, or what it meant to be an immigrant woman, what it meant to be an Asian-American lawyer, um, all of these identities I had never really thought about before. And so I was sort of forced, I was literally forced in sort of a medical way, in a mental health way, to take some time off and really think about those questions. And it's not like there was like a bright light that came on. I'm like, hey, here I am. Um, it's an ongoing process, right? But I had to come to terms with being an Asian that doesn't really feel Asian, being an American that doesn't really feel American, being an immigrant who isn't represented in an immigrant narrative, being an Asian-American woman in a profession dominated by white men. Here's Patty Duncan again, our moderator. I was planning to just moderate and not really share my experience. And then my, um, my co-presenters were like, oh, but Patty, you should share something too. So I'll just give a tiny little bit of my own origin story or um, um, a little bit about my history. So I am a mixed race Asian American woman. Um, my mother arrived in the U.S. from South Korea when she was pregnant with me. And she met my father at a U.S. military base um, outside of Seoul. Her um, education, her, her formal education ended at sixth grade. And she found herself in her later, in her um, 20s working in, at a um, U.S. military camp town, uh, the, at a military base, which is where she met my father, who um, was in the army at that time, stationed in Korea as part of the occupation of Korea. And so my mom arrived with uh, me and my sister, who was one at the time, 
in a country where she was really, really unprepared to experience uh, U.S. racism or American racism. Um, I, I did have connections to Korea through my mom. We ate Korean food at home. Um, but I also had experiences of taking that beloved Korean food to school in my lunchbox and having other kids ridicule me and say that it smelled bad. Um, and so there was shame and there was also joy and connection. Um, going to Korea for the first time as an adult, um, I thought would be a homecoming, and I thought there would be this wonderful sense of belonging. I wasn't prepared for the stigma of mixed-race Korean people that I experienced there, especially the stigma of children born to U.S. GIs and Korean women. You know, I feel like as I try to unravel some of the pieces of my story, I'm always struck by how there were really wonderful sources of connection and also the forms of trauma that I think all four of us up here share. This question, I think, is a little hard. Um, during the COVID-19 pandemic, anti-Asian violence has escalated with hate incidents targeting Asian American women surging dramatically. Acknowledging that we've all experienced heightened trauma during this time, and also that many of us have experienced anti-Asian sentiments our whole lives, can you please speak to the issue of anti-Asian violence? Is this something that you've witnessed or experienced? If so, how can we begin to make sense of it within the context of U.S. history, society, and contemporary politics? You know, I, I think the way that Patty has worded this is really important. Here's Jennifer Fang. The term escalating, right? That it, it's not just coming out of nowhere. That it's always been with us. And we're experiencing this moment where it is, it's happening more than it has you know, in the last, like, few years or so, you know, right? Like, or the last decade or whatever. You know, of course, the circumstances surrounding this current escalation, this current resurgence of anti-Asian hate is very much rooted in the pandemic, right? Um, this sense of, like, maybe this virus that has uprooted all of our lives and, you know, hurt, affected everybody, um, maybe it came from China. Really what this is rooted in is this sense of um, Asian people in this country being seen as perpetually foreign or that they are somehow seen as they, they, they do not belong, that they are like fundamentally un-American. Maybe, you know, I think it's, it's kind of a mis misguided belief that like Asian Americans have achieved so much, that they have like arrived, that they are model minorities. But it really doesn't take very much for that person or that, that image of the model minority to just be cut down into, you know, to be reduced to a slur, to be reduced to a stereotype. I'll talk a little bit about, you know, there's so many things, right? Um, Here's Leonie Reeves. You know, I will say, so the morning after the Atlanta shootings of the... Um, 
the Asian women. It was primarily Asian women. I woke up the next morning thinking, well, I feel a little unsafe to go outside, but it's not much different than how I operate every day, right? Like, as an Asian American woman, throughout my entire life, I've always sort of operated with this sense of being a potential victim or target of violence just because I'm an Asian woman. You know, one of my first earliest sort of experiences with this, I was yet really to be an Asian woman. I was 14, turning 15 on a school bus in Coos Bay. A senior boy sat down next to me on the bus. He pulled out a knife. It's Coos Bay, you know, people, people carry <laughs> weapons and stuff. Pulled out a knife, you know, sort of brandished it called me a gook, told me to go back to China, and then proceeded to try to grope me and kiss me and like make out with me on the school bus. School bus driver saw it, I was in the second row, no intervention. Um, but for me, it was just like this confusion, right? Like first you're like trying to repel me because you find me so disgusting and foreign that you want me to go back to my country, whatever that means. And but you also want to like make out with me. So that is sort of the experience as an Asian woman that you know, I carry with me is that I constantly feel like I could be a target just because I am an Asian woman. One of the things that's always really interesting to me as an adoptee is like I'm kind of an experiment, right? Because I'm not Asian. I mean, I look Asian, but I don't feel Asian and I wasn't raised Asian. So all of that Asian cultural stuff that gets associated with Asian communities and Asian traits, like I don't have any of that. Like, I have so much white privilege. I have no imposter syndrome. Like, I was raised by white folks that told me I could do whatever I wanted and that any obstacle will just move out of the way because we are white. Um, that is how I was raised. And so I don't have any of that cultural baggage to, like, weigh me down. But every that doesn't mean that everybody else who interacts with me doesn't impose that on me, right? And so I kind of feel like adoptees are an experiment because we grew up completely white but people see us and they still treat us as this concept of like, you are not one of us, you are foreign, you have all of these things that we don't understand just because of the way you present. Those of us who worked a lot in trauma know that um, linear time um, is oftentimes reduced or erased when people experience trauma. This is Jane Vogel-Montery speaking. For me, um, when we talk about Asian hate, although I don't experience that with this latest wave, um, it definitely is a part of my history. When we arrived in the United States, we were, our church put us in a, cute little apartment in, an, in a very white Germanic neighborhood that had no apartments. It, they had beautiful little houses. It, we didn't have air conditioning in those days, and so the windows were always open. And the one thing was that the smells that came out of our house made us stand out. The smells that lingered in our clothing, which were garlics and gingers, when I walked into school, that was not a welcoming smell. And there was a policeman who lived across the street and his two sons 
once, at least once, once that I remember, came up to me, I was on my way home, and they took turns just punching me in the stomach till I lost my breath. And they chanted, go back to where you came from. All of you, the three of you do really important work here in Oregon, especially in terms of building community, mentoring and empowering others, increasing visibility, and elevating the voices of other Asian American women. How does your identity as an Asian American woman influence the work that you do? When I came to the United States at the age of seven, as you all know, um, it, it was a very difficult time for myself and my family. And the way that I survived was that I got into writing stories and um, acting them out. And I would act them out in the basement of our apartment. And my first audience was a very captivated family of mice that would come <laughs> down from the rafters. Um, and then the church people also donated a television. And oh my goodness, how magical is that? And I realized that the people inside the boxes were called actors. And as I just became immersed in figuring out how someday I could get inside that box and become someone who I was not, that was, I think, the way I survived, that I could create stories or I could pretend I was an actress and not have to be me. Later, when my father and I were alone, he took me aside, and my father was the most influential person in my life. I, he, um, he and I had a very, very special bond. And he took me aside, and he said, Jane, I, he said, you're going to high school, and very soon you're going to be on your own. And I must now forbid you to ever tell anyone that you are going to be an actress. He said, in America, they do bad things to women who become actresses, and I can't let anything bad happen to you. And I said, Papa, I promise I won't ever say that again. You know, I did what a lot of immigrant children do, and that is to make their parents' sacrifice worthy. And so I put my nose to the grindstone and went to school for a hundred years <laughs> and became a I became a trauma psychologist and I felt like the most privileged human being to be able to be a part of people's stories and to help them find daylight when there was none. And I thought that that was what I was going to do for the rest of my life. And then when I hit my 40s, late 40s, my father died of cancer. And I decided that I needed to take a break from my trauma healer role and do my own healing. 
And then I, I started to slowly transition and spend more and more time doing my acting, but I am now then approaching my 60s. And I realize that the roles that I am being offered are the butt of, of the jokes. And so I decided that I was going to raise some money. And I said to those same directors, I said, hey, you know what? If you start putting women on the stage, if you start having women be more in leadership, directors' roles, playwrights, you can have this grant of $20,000, $30,000. And so Portland Theaters started uh, competing for the grants. And in five years, we got our statistics from 85%, which was the uh, national average of, of white men producing, directing plays, to much closer to 50%. And in some of the major theaters, it was even beyond 50%. I practice my opening statements to my cats, so <laughs> some similarities there. But I am not an actor. Uh, I'm, I am a lawyer. And so um, some may not see the difference. But in any event, so most of the work I've done is in the legal community, trying to mentor law students, people who are interested in going to law school, especially women of color, people from underrepresented backgrounds, um, refugee communities, uh, to try to get them into law because it's really important to have representation at all levels of our justice system. Um, I want to talk a little bit, though, since it's National Adoption Month, I want to talk about um, an issue that's really important to me and I think is really important to shed some light on. So there are about 25,000-ish, that's an estimate, adoptees that were brought here to live in American, primarily Caucasian families, but their families did not secure their citizenship by the time they turned 18. And so they are now being deported, at risk of deportation, unable to work, um, living in the shadows because they're um, fearful of becoming to the attention of the federal government or of ICE, um, who are essentially have been abandoned by their birth countries and are now being abandoned by this country, even though they have lived here as Americans and American families um, and have no connection to their birth families. It would be like deporting me to Korea. I don't speak the language. I have no connection to Korea. A lot of the cases that are publicized around this issue are people that come to the attention of the federal government because of criminal issues and they're, they're being deported because they committed a crime and so that's how they came to the attention of the authorities. But there are a lot of adoptees that have no criminal issues that are just simply, they're out of status and have no way to get legal status except through a congressional act. And so um, one of the groups that I founded was within the National Asian Bar Association, which is the big bar for all Asian lawyers, Asian Pacific American lawyers across the country. I founded an adoptee network within that community. And one of the things that we've been working on very heavily is trying to get the Adoptee Citizenship Act passed to make sure that it closes the loophole for this group of adoptees that are at risk of deportation.
I come at this work from from sort of two different directions. Um, first is the the work that I do when I'm like when I put on my historian hat and am like writing and researching and teaching, and then there is the work that I do as a museum practic- practitioner of working in these institutions that wh- whose mission is to serve the public and to educate the public. As a historian, um, I I think I'm really guided by this desire to, to play what little role I can play in like making this like narrative of American history one that represents and includes everybody. How can I weave in like Asian American history into this like dominant historical narrative? There is a need to, I think, to create a new dominant narrative. And to have this new dominant narrative be one that tells the story of everybody. As a museum practitioner, I, of course, I don't, you know, it's, I don't work in Asian American history. Like, I don't, I don't deal with that in my, in my day-to-day work so much. But um, I think that my work is very much guided by this idea that, like, if you, you know, if you are working, if you're representing, if you're doing the work within this cultural institution, you have to make sure that your cultural institution is really serving everybody to the best of its ability, confronting difficult stories, confronting difficult pasts and doing it honestly and doing it, you know, with an open mind, you know, doing that. I think that little bit of work helps to make some difference. I mean, it's not, you know, not nearly as like monumental as the work that the two of you are doing, but you know, it's just, just a little thing. <laughs> it, it, no, it's so important and it's amazing. And I love that even up here, y'all are doing this work of advocacy and mentoring and healing, healing justice and education. question or two or comment and particularly from other Asian American women? Hi, I'm Janet and uh, I came to America when I was 10. And then 20 years later, I went back to China with my mother and we met relatives. And at that time, um, people were just coming out of the cultural revolution. So they all wore these faded Mao outfits. And here we are in American, you know, we, we had lots of material things. So we were you know, lacking not much compared to them. But then one of my cousins asked me, she said, why are you Chinese consider yourself inferior? And I was so taken back because I thought, you know, I'm superior. I have all these things. But my attitude, my attitude of having spending 20 years in America was that I'm not worth it. I'm, I can be a helper. I can never be the one in charge. And you know, looking at you guys, you know, you, I don't think you probably suffered very much from that, but I think that attitude is still prevalent in America that you don't see the Asians in charge of things. So I'm, I would like to find your, your reaction to that. You know, how is this inferiority complex among Asians in America? Um, I'll just say real quick that um, I, I feel imposter syndrome like all the time. 
my family was never like, oh, you can't do this, you can't do that. They were like, you can do any, you know, you can do anything. Yeah, you can go to school for a hundred years and be become a historian and, you know, never be gainfully employed. <laughs> like, it's just like that's fine. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I, I definitely feel like throughout my life, like that, I didn't belong. That I could never be uh, a like a voice of authority or that I could never hold any power or that when I found myself in these positions where I was being looked at as a voice of authority or I was, you know, I'd always kind of second, I always second guess myself. And I spoke to that a little bit already in terms of like, because I didn't grow up culturally Asian and my Asian, culturally Asian friends talk about like, you know, their parents shaming them and you know, like failure was not an option. When I failed at something, my parents bought me lobster dinner because <laughs> they wanted me to know that there is no obstacle called failure. Like you, like failure is just like one more step to success, right? And so I don't have that. Like I don't have that internal feeling of inferiority, but I have had it imposed upon me, right? Like, and so, and I know that that has impacted me throughout times of my life. And so that is how strong it is, right? Is that that external, cultural, American, people of color are inferior and we will treat you as such is so strong that it could overcome my very white, privileged, you can do anything, lobster dinner background. (laughs) I had to reconcile and come to terms with all of those identities um, and reclaim them as something that I can, you know, feel comfortable with and walk around with and sort of claim this is who I am, even in all of these spaces where I don't necessarily belong. Um, That's an ongoing process for me. um, And, uh, you know, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about that in public ways, even though it's painful. Um, And, you know, we've been, I think, as a society, and, and I know a lot of the cultures that we come from, it's, you know, not... It's, they're stigmatized around sort of mental health issues and talking about your past and your trauma. But I think it's really important because we all have trauma. We all carry with us our own trauma, the trauma of our families, um, the trauma of our experiences. And if we can't talk about that and, and get that out, um, we can't move past it. And I know that every time I talk about this experience, there's so, at least some person in the room that can identify with it and can feel comfort in the fact that you're not alone. And so that's why I'm here and that's why I'm very grateful to this program and um, to my co-panelists who have also put everything out there um, for people to hear and to listen and to experience. These remarkable women have incredible stories. If you want to hear more from them individually, we have each of their personal stories in our archives. Many Roads to Hear is a production of The Immigrant Story. Thanks to all of these panelists for their time and storytelling. And special thanks to the Oregon Historical Society for organizing and hosting this live event. They continue to be amazing partners for us here at The Immigrant Story. This episode is part of the I Am an American series, generously funded by Anne Nato Campbell. It was produced as part of the Oregon Rises Above Hate Coalition. I produced this episode and Greg Palmer did the audio post-production. Thanks as always to our executive producer, 
the deeply purposeful Sankar Raman. For more stories, visit our website, listen live at prp.fm, or stream us wherever you get your podcasts.